Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with Regan Ralph, the founding president and CEO of the Fund for Global Human Rights, a position she's held since 2002. Prior to this, Regan was vice president for health and reproductive rights at the National Women's Law Center in Washington, D.C., And before that, she was director of the Women's Rights Division of Human Rights Watch. At a time when human rights movements face existential threats by authoritarian governments throughout the world and international organizations are being squeezed out by repressive regimes, the local civil society is often the last line of defense for marginalized people. The Fund for Global Human Rights, led by Regan, has equipped local leaders and grassroots activists to realize long-term systemic change in their communities. Let's get her on the line. Regan, welcome to At A Distance. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you, Andrew. It's nice to be here. So I wanted to just begin broadly about um, learning a bit about the origin story of the Fund for Global Human Rights, kind of how it got started, what the journey's been to now, which is incredibly impressive, having distributed more than $100 million in grants to local human rights activists around the world. So the Fund for Global Human Rights was born in 2002, and it came out of something that was then called the International Human Rights Funders Group, which was an affinity group of donors, primarily private foundations and individuals based in the United States and in Europe, who were interested in getting more resources into the hands of human rights activists working in countries around the world. Many people, when they think of human rights organizations, think of big international organizations like Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch. And in fact, there are hundreds of thousands of local human rights activists working on the ground around the world who have relatively limited access to resources. So that was the sort of starting idea was let's figure out a way to drive those resources closer to the ground. And we did that with a million dollars in seed money at the outset um, and just the idea of using our networks and contacts and email and the internet to try and do outreach to human rights groups uh, around the world. And we started the first year of our grant making. We gave away a million dollars in Latin America, West Africa, and South Asia. And since then, the work of the fund has expanded to cover more regions. We're also now in Southeast Asia, North Africa, African Great Lakes. And we also, by virtue of the fact that we work globally, have seen rise out of the different places that we fund certain thematic issues that are consistent from place to place. I mean, they may look different Mm -hmm. and they probably do look different based on the context, but issues like access to justice, corporate accountability, migration and migrants' rights, children's rights, LGBTQ rights, climate uh, justice. And then more recently, probably over the past five to six years, we've seen a rise in the threats and attacks on human rights activism in countries around the world and government efforts to close down the space for that kind of work. And so we have a program dedicated to supporting activists, uh, whether to push back against those restrictions or to stop them from developing in the first place. What are some of the key lessons you've learned about specifically the kind of support needed to build effective human rights movements? So that is one of the things that we talk about all the time. And I think 
the lessons in some ways seem very basic, but I think they're really important. Mm -hmm. So the first is, you know, when we started, so I've been a fundraiser my entire career. I've always been in the nonprofit sector. I'm a human rights lawyer, and that means I've always been raising money. So I know what it feels like to have really heavy, restricted funding coming from donors that gives you very little wiggle room for what you can do. And so it was the idea from the beginning that we wouldn't do that, that we would give general operating support grants to groups and let them decide what the priorities should be and how to spend the money. That was remarkably rare 20 years ago. Um, It's much less rare now. And now there's actually an expression that people use for the kind of funding we do, which is trust-based philanthropy, where you basically find those organizations that you want to support support because you respect and admire the way they are working. And um, you give them the resources and let them make the decisions. So I think that's an important part of it. I also think that when you're funding in the social justice or human rights, social change, however you'd like to describe it, when you're funding in that world, you have to be prepared to invest over time. Social justice does not come as a result of one action or one set of demonstrations or one case litigated at the national level. It's a process of building. And one of the things that I've definitely seen, actually to a remarkable degree since we started the fund 18 years ago, is how when civil society And by that, I mean not just human rights organizations, but trade unions and community organizations and women's organizations and, you know, you name it. When those organizations are layered and deep and multifaceted, you begin to have spaces where local organizations and communities have the kind of political agency to set the agenda for their communities. But that's obviously a building process that takes many, many years. And so that's another, I think, very important thing that we've learned. And also, specifically in the human rights sector, that the the local component of human rights advocacy is hugely important. I think when I was a young human rights lawyer, a lot of the thinking about human rights progress was really focused on courts and legal systems and how you make change at that level or at the level of lobbying governments to change their policies and practices. But what I see is these amazing organizations coming out of communities all over the world that are, you know, all the buzzwords that we use now, like intersectional, these groups do that because that's the way they live. And that's the way problems present themselves. And so they engage them in a multifaceted way because that's how they think they can best advance the, the interests of their community. So I think... I would say that those are probably three of the most important things I've learned over time. And the fact of the matter is the other thing I've learned, which is the thing that helps me stay hopeful even in times like 2020, is that even when you have oppressive governments, even when the tide seems to be turning to the negative, these local organizations are figuring out ways to represent the interests of their community and make change, no matter the bigger picture Mm. context. And that I think is really important to remember at a time when you look at global trends right now and they're not terribly encouraging. Connected to this moment, 2020, what's been the impact of COVID-19 on the work you're doing and and on the communities you're serving? That is a big question because COVID-19 has affected every single community and organization that we work with, but to very different degrees. So we did a survey of our grantees in the early weeks and months of the arrival of the pandemic and it spread across the globe. And what we found was really a mixed bag. Everybody was dealing with the consequence of COVID-19, but 
very few organizations were actually facing the need to shut down, Mm -hmm. whether because of lockdown policies or because they'd run out of resources. Most were continuing to do the work they had done beforehand, but almost all were also doing work related to the pandemic. So that might mean, for example, in Honduras, we support a number of indigenous people's organizations that work on land rights and, and the interests of their communities. And they were the ones who organized their communities, made sure that people had access to food, made sure that people had access to the basic services they and the information they needed from a public health perspective. And that's a really important thing because in many places in which we work, government has a really bad reputation with local communities. They're not known for looking out for the interests of their communities. And in fact, they're known for abusing the interests of those communities. So having those vocal authoritative interlocutors representing the interests of the communities and looking out for them at a time like this has been hugely important. And I think I think there are a lot of lessons in there for us all about the value of a strong civil society in a time of crisis. In other contexts, we've seen governments, whether for lack of knowledge of what else to do or because they're cynically opportunistic, using this opportunity to increase government power in a way that doesn't necessarily serve the interests of local communities. So in Nigeria, for example, in the spring, the government was passing an amendment to its public health law, which was theoretically in response to COVID, but in fact, it was uh, going to increase police powers, give the government the right to forcibly vaccinate people without any informed consent, and create surveillance mechanisms purportedly on on public health grounds that would have just been beyond anything that had happened before. And so organizations that we work with, led by a group called Spaces for Change, found out that this was happening, demanded that civil society have some voice in that in that debate. And the, the legislation was initially tabled for discussion. So they were planning to get mm. that legislation through without any engagement with Nigerian society. And the activists that we support were able to step in and do something to stop that. So I, I think we've seen you know, really everything from these organizations pivoting and meeting the needs of their communities as as newly defined by the pandemic context to these groups stepping in and making sure that government doesn't abuse this moment to uh, create powers that they then are very reluctant to give up. Mm. What do you think are going to be some of the long-term implications of COVID-19 on, on societies and, and particularly on the underserved communities, a lot of the communities you work with? There are a couple of things I wonder about this moment. One is that I think 2020, both because of COVID and because of the uprisings we've seen protesting racial inequality in the United States and beyond, this is a moment when the systemic shortcomings of societies are really exposed. Mm -hmm. These are not isolated problems. These are countries and systems failing to meet the needs of their people in a time of a pandemic. And I, I think that, to my mind, raises the question of then what's the appropriate response? Do we continue to have one-off responses or do we think about systemic change? And from the perspective of a human rights activist, I think you need to look at questions of inequality and how they are embedded in systems of government around the world. So, you know, one very likely response to what has happened with COVID-19 and the fallout is that governments that provide aid may wind up 
pouring money into countries around the world to enhance their public health systems. But the truth of the matter is, if you haven't done anything about corruption and accountability to citizens, that money may not get spent the way it's intended, or it may not benefit more than a narrow slice of the population. And if we don't change those facts, we won't change how crises like COVID-19 land on populations across the world. One, I think, potential long-term consequence is that both on the human rights side and on the philanthropy side, people may be seeing systemic change as the goal now, not some lofty ideal that is unattainable. The other potential long-term consequence, I think, of COVID-19 has to do with where we are in the sort of authoritarian trend that we've been seeing globally. I would say that over the past 10 years or so, authoritarianism uh, as a form of political expression has been on the rise globally. And that has, you know, as I mentioned earlier, resulted in the crackdown on human rights activism and other kinds of independent organizing in countries around the world. But when you have something like a pandemic, which actually requires a thoughtful, well-informed government response that's well executed by people who know what they're doing and can reach communities across the country, you see authoritarian governments, they don't know how to do that. They don't know how to govern. They just know how to amass power. And I think that that may create some opening for actually swinging the whole trend towards authoritarianism in another direction. Now, it's not just going to happen by itself, but that's why we need strong independent voices saying, here it is. These are the shortcomings of authoritarianism, and now everybody feels it. We can imagine something better. And in fact, we've been doing things that serve our communities much better on the local level. What can we learn from that to change our national political systems? Mm. I'm actually, I'm always looking for silver linings. But in this case, I actually think that that instability created by the inability of authoritarian governments to respond to the demands of this moment may actually create new openings for change. Hmm. Along with several other groups, the Fund for Global Human Rights created the COVID-19 Grassroots Justice Fund earlier this year. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this fund, which is aiming to raise a million dollars to support grassroots justice groups around the world. What sort of impact do you think this is going to have? Do you want it to have? So the importance of local advocates in particular, the kind that are supported by the COVID-19 Justice Fund, is that they are representing the interests of their communities vis-a-vis the justice system, at a, in particular at a moment when you know COVID-19 is the issue. So that, that can mean a number of different things. It can mean that or local communities need representation because of issues they're facing that flow directly from COVID-19, whether it's a lack of access to the healthcare they need or uh, resisting lockdowns that are incredibly punitively enforced. There were stories out of Kenya early in the lockdown because of COVID-19 in Kenya of police shooting people who broke curfew, people who might have been on their way to the hospital and things like that. So we felt like it was a need to partner with Namati and the elders and others to create an emergency resource fund for organizations that were confronting those kinds of legal restrictions on their communities. 
It connects also, I think, to the importance of legal empowerment as a strategy for local communities, much the same way that you want local health advocates to be looking out for the interests of communities and appreciating and understanding and responding to their context. It helps to have legal advocates, not necessarily lawyers, but just people who understand how to navigate the legal system and represent people's interests in the face of those kinds of institutions. Mm. And particularly at a moment like this, when people feel even more distant from their institutions because they're cut off and they're told to stay home and not to move around, we thought it was really important to make sure that those voices were being supported and could get resources in a moment of crisis. Because another thing that happened at the beginning of the pandemic was that people weren't sure what the impact, because the impact on economies was also profound, people weren't sure what kind of support would be available to local activists. So we wanted to make sure that they didn't suffer just because they couldn't get access to resources. Hmm. I wanted to talk a bit about measurable impact and sort of how that drives decisions to fund social movements. When I think it's clear that real change sometimes occurs in ways that are hard to quantify. I mean, we've seen that a lot in the past year. And we spoke a bit earlier about how you've structured your fund to sort of counteract that a bit, but I'd love for you to unpack that a bit more. Measurable impact, I think people usually start by wondering what kind of quantitative measures could you come up with to evaluate the the work that social change organizations are doing. And I have to say that I think when conversations started in the social justice world and, and in philanthropy about measurable impact, I was pretty skeptical about how it would help us understand what kind of human rights work was actually changing people's lives. As you say, it's very hard to quantify. Change can take a really long time. It can be dependent upon things that are completely outside your control. But I also think that the field has advanced enormously in the past 20 years. And there are others who have paved the way before us, but we have started looking at indicators that we can measure across different contexts to see what difference our grant making is making. For example, we fund in critical situations. So we have emergency resources that are available to organizations working in crisis moments, not COVID-related necessarily, but say political crisis moments. Does the funding that we give actually measurably change the safety and security of the activists that we're supporting? Does the funding that we're doing create more space for them to advance their issues in the moment of crisis? So there are ways of talking about it that are not quantifiable in the ways that, you know, how many people came to a meeting is quantifiable, but that mm -hmm. can actually gauge over time what is happening in the communities and what benefits and rights people are enjoying and at what level. Mm. And we're still in early days because to do this kind of thing well is incredibly labor intensive and expensive. But I think that it is important that we find the ways to be able to show the difference that these organizations make, because I think this is one of the most important stories of our era, actually, is that these local activists are actually changing societal dynamics, creating space for or groups of people who have been marginalized for centuries, and changing power dynamics in their local context. And that is making change. And we need to be able to tell that story in a way that people really understand. Yeah. And we've certainly seen it in this country, how the largest changes can happen from individuals. Yep. You know, we, we talked a bit about time and how change takes time and, you know, sometimes many years. So how important is it to think about multi-year funding? Like what responsibility does a funder have to be projective, stick it out? And, and what do they benefit by doing that? And can it be sometimes critical to be 
sticking in for the long haul, because if you're not, you can actually push things in the wrong direction. I think this is actually one of the most important components of social change funding, and it is certainly one of the things that we have seen make the biggest difference over time. Not everything we fund is a long-term project, but certainly if you're trying to build stronger organizations and broader, deeper movements, that is a project that takes many years. So I think to the extent that funders are able to provide multi-year funding, that's critical because it allows organizations to imagine the future, to plan for the future, to set their priorities, and to execute on them, and then also to pivot and change when circumstances demand. I mean, I've, you know, been at the organization for 18 years and gone from being one and a half staff people to being almost 50. And the amount of change and investment that we've had to make in our own organization to make it viable and sustainable over time has been, that's been a real education. So when I think about all these organizations operating in contexts all over the world, that's a real thing. Mm. And I think one of the things that funders have done that has not been in the best interests of organizations over time is is one-off funding or narrowly focused funding or funding that expects to see results in an incredibly short time frame or else they just move on. And I mean, no organization is going to turn down the opportunity to have resources that they can use effectively, even if they're very time limited. But if you really want to change the way societies function and to make movements and organizations and the sector of civil society sustainable over time, you have to give them the time to breathe and to learn and to grow and to make a difference and to make their case. So I think that's hugely important. We're, we're a public foundation, so we only our grants are only one year at a time. I feel honor bound to say that. But most of our grantees know that they will be supported by us over the long haul because that's how we operate, even mm. though we can't make those commitments because we have to raise the money from one year to the next. Right. Right. And uh, and the economy changes from one year to the next. Indeed it does. <laughs> um, one of the questions I had for you today was in general about movements. We've seen this shift towards decentralized movements, Me Too, um, Extinction Rebellion. And when you think about how effective those can be and how catalytic they've been for so many other issues, but how hard are they to fund? You know, when you're looking right now at the world and you're saying, wow, that movement really made change in all these other areas, but how do we fund a decentralized movement? I think that the truth is once you start looking at movements, you see that they are multidimensional creatures. So you may have spontaneous or leaderless or you know multi-headed movements like those you mentioned, and those are very difficult to fund. There's no structure or capacity to absorb resources, but often right alongside them are the structures and resources that make it possible to support the groups in various different ways. And thinking outside the U.S. context, there are a lot of organizations, and I'm sure the, these exist in the U.S. as well, but we, there are a lot of organizations that we sort of call movement organizations. So rather than being traditional non-governmental organizations that are based in capital cities or spontaneous movements of people taking to the street to demand change, these are the groups that build constituencies over time. So for example, in India, we support an organization called ASWA, which is the Association of Women Living Alone. These are single women who've divorced, widowed, whatever, who have traditionally been cast-offs in society, basically. They find it difficult to make a living, to look out for themselves and their children, etc. And they started in one part of India with a few hundred women 
building community. And they now represent, I think, something like 60 or 70,000 women across a number of Indian states. And they have changed the law. They've changed the benefits that these women are able to access. They've brought them political voice in a way that was unimaginable 15 years ago. And those are what we call movement organizations because they really do represent these mass and increasingly influential constituencies. But they are also, they have infrastructure, they bring people in, they train people people on how to do the work. And then they coexist with the more spontaneous outbreaks. And I think you need all of it to make real change. I think you need Mm -hmm. the loud voices. I think you need the people in the streets. I think you need lawyers uh, showing up in court. I think you need people working with communities to understand what their needs are and bringing those people into the other conversations. So I think ultimately, where I've seen change happen in a way that is both significant and sustained is where you have almost an ecosystem of actors playing different roles Mm -hmm. to advance the issues and the cause. And so while it may be harder as as a funder to support the leaderless movements, there are ways to support the objectives of those movements that can actually support them in moving forward. One final question on on funding and movements and all these things you've learned in, in the last 18 years is, you know, maybe it was more so criticized 10, 15 years ago, but this idea of sort of exporting values along with your money. And I didn't want to finish a conversation with you without talking about that one point, you know, and how what you've learned and, and the ways in which you've behaved to mitigate the exporting of, of certain values along with the aid. Yeah. Now, I've been dealing with this question with different vocabulary my entire career because I started sure. as a women's rights advocate. And before the the World Conference on Women in Beijing in 1995, where Hillary Clinton famously said women's rights are human rights, I was regularly debating people on the other side of the issue and being told that that I was an American feminist exporting radical values to the rest of the world. And what I said to that, and I think it's relevant to your question, Andrew, is that you know, no body politic is monolithic. I mean, there's no place you're going to go in the world and hear every woman, every man, every Colombian, every Indian, every Egyptian saying the same thing about what their society is and what rights should look like. And the whole point is just to give people agency so that they can define their own reality and advance their interests as they choose. So I think that that's kind of informed our thinking as we've built the fund. But I I still think it's a persistent risk for two reasons. We are based in the global north. Uh, Right now, the Fund for Global Human Rights has offices in Washington, D.C. and in London. But we also have colleagues who work all over the world. And as we grew, we shifted from having our staff based only in those northern cities to now we have program staff members in countries in every region in which we work. Mm -hmm. And they typically come from or are of the movements that they are now funding on behalf of the Fund for Global Human Rights. And that changes everything because they are in constant conversation with those organizations and finding out what their priorities are are and having actual back and forth with them about what what needs to change and how the fund can be useful to them. And so that helps, I think, mitigate the risk of exporting values because really we're not telling them what to do. We're asking them what they want from us. Mm. You really do have to build trust before people believe that you mean that when you say it and, and where they can see that you actually will work with them so that they have the resources that they need to advance their issues. 
And there's a certain amount of training, I guess, involved in, in, in coming from your leadership about what listening looks like and what the right questions look like. I mean, I'm sure that's developed a lot within your organization over the years. Definitely. But I also think that when people come to the fund, that's a part of what they bring with them. And so they know these organizations. And, you know, almost everybody who works with the fund has a history with the human rights activism in the regions where they work. And so they often are already in those conversations when they come to the organization. And that means they're bringing an enormous amount of learning in rather than us sending the learning out. Hmm. So I wanted to focus the lens on the U.S. for a minute. Democracy here is being incredibly tested right now. So I was wondering broadly what your view of the presidential election is. Easy question, right? <laughs> <laughs> and we could maybe couch it in terms of human rights. Like, let's imagine there's a presidential debate and there's a question about human rights. What would the question be that you would want to ask and what would you hope would be some of the answers on the stage? I think a really important question to ask, let's say, if we were having a debate where people actually debated the issues and spoke to each other, <laughs> would be, what is the role of the United States in promoting some universal notion of human dignity and justice? And I think that that is not a straightforward question, right, for the U.S., because the U.S. has been a champion of human rights, uh, theoretically. But some would say it has been an enemy of human rights cynically in terms of its inconsistent application of rhetoric and policy. And so I think knowing where the United States stands on how it can promote universal norms of human rights on the one hand, but work cooperatively with other governments to actually give those, those ideals meaning in a way that is not disposed the minute it stands in conflict with something else. Because I really think that human rights are something of a moral imperative, but I also think they are really relevant to thinking about how you want to build just societies. How do you build societies in which everybody has a shot, where people can support their families, where they have a reasonable expectation of physical security, where they can participate in the political life of their of their communities and their countries, where they can set the agenda for how public monies are spent and whether the needs of communities are met. And all of those things, to my mind, contribute to stable, sustainable, open societies. And mm -hmm. How does a, a country like the United States, which has such a complicated record historically on human rights, how does it actually enter into conversation, diplomacy, and behavior in a way that supports those norms globally? Mm. I have to also bring up, given the events this week, there's the Supreme Court confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. What in your mind, and given your background with women's rights, are, are you thinking about in terms of this confirmation, what do you think it will mean for women's rights, women's reproductive rights? Well, it's hard to predict the future, right? I think clearly we're looking at a situation where women's reproductive rights and 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 other rights of American citizens, things pertaining to health and, and other issues may have the potential to be changed at the level of the Supreme Court in a way that uh, wasn't imaginable 10 years ago. And I think these are challenges that societies always face. Like I said, you know, we're not monolithic. People have different opinions and different agendas. But I think these are the moments when you learn the value of civil society. And I hate to think 
where we would be in this country if we didn't have all the actors standing up and calling out the the problematic behaviors and records that policymakers bring to the table and documenting the problems for society and for all of us and our basic rights should matter to us every day. But I think it's in the moments where we really feel threatened mm -hmm. that we begin to recognize the value of these actors and societies. And I'm grateful to live in a country where we have a deep tradition of civil society activism. And I think that's one of the things that everybody around the world, and this going back to your earlier question about exporting values, I've never been in a place where people didn't want to stick up for themselves and their communities on their own terms. So this is a moment when I think Americans are going to be challenged to decide what matters to them and how they advance their interests. And they might find that the courts are not the best way to do that. But we have a lot of other options available to us in this country. Mm -hmm. There's a lot at stake for sure. And I think we can't be complacent as Americans, no more than anybody else can be complacent. And I think the mythical idea of the shining city on the hill may have left a lot of people feeling complacent. And I, I agree. I think we're being tested. I think we have some real systemic challenges with significant rights implications for us in the United States right now. And the current Supreme Court confirmation hearings may bring some of those into focus, but I think the past four years have brought lots of those into focus. Hmm. How are you thinking about the climate crisis when it comes to human rights? What impact do you think climate migration is going to have on the planet? And how is this affecting indigenous communities? I think climate change and human rights come together to create sort of the conversation about climate justice. And this is one of our emerging priorities, certainly as an organization. And I say that not because we've decided that, but because every place that we fund, people are looking at these issues and trying to meet the challenges. Climate migration is already real. As um, I'm sure you all know, in Central America, the temperature changes are so significant right now that places that used to have highly productive coffee farms are now desolate wastelands because it's just too hot to grow the crops. And those are places where people are making the difficult decision to leave their homes because they have to find a way to support their families so they don't starve. That is what climate migration looks like. Mm. And I think that that will only increase as long as climate change continues in the way that it has been. And these force serious conversations about human rights issues. What is responsible migration policy look like under those circumstances? What does responsible climate change policy look like under those circumstances? How do we respond to this moment? And I don't think there are solutions that are viable that can be taken by one government. I think this has to be a global conversation about how we work together to save our planet and to save our livelihoods. And it's not about the trees alone at this point, although the trees matter a lot. Mm -hmm. It is about sustaining life and society and mm -hmm. respecting and understanding our relationship to the natural world as a way of, of doing that. And certainly that's one of the nice things about working with all these organizations that come out of and are embedded in communities because they live that reality every day. They see the changes in their natural environment and they have to cope with the consequences consequences for the lives of the people whose interests they represent. And I also think that a lot of this becomes a human rights conversation too, because solutions to climate change need to incorporate the interests of the communities who are most directly affected by these things. And that hasn't always happened. So you have climate mitigation strategies that 
may disempower or even harm communities that are sitting where the consequences of climate change are happening most immediately. And that's another element of the human rights conversation that needs to be talking to the climate conversation. Something we talk about a lot on this podcast, which we started at the very beginning of COVID, you know, early March, is just the idea of global coordination. I mean, we're talking about it in regard to the climate crisis, human rights, but even just the pandemic, you know, there was very little global coordination. And, and that's why we are where we are in this moment, seven, eight months later. So on that, our final question is, what's your greatest hope as we emerge from this? You know, when you, when you look forward and, and, you, and you consider your optimistic side, what do you see as your greatest hope? I mean, my hope is always that the values that inform the work of the organizations we support will be shaping the policy agendas of the future. Because I think if we can get to that point, there are a lot of people who will live a very different quality of life, uh, who will enjoy greater dignity and access to justice. I would love to see that as something that this moment teaches us in terms of how important it is and how important it is to work together to get there. And the problems that we're coping with on a global scale feel kind of intractable. I mean, as you said, the lack of global coordination contributed to the pandemic's impact being so much worse than it had to be. That didn't just happen. This is a trend that's been going on for the past 10 plus years of governments sort of disengaging from this notion of an international community, moving away from international multilateral institutions, becoming increasingly nationalistic in their outlook and their behavior. And this is the cost of that. So if we can say there's a better way to do this and let's create some space for that, and that actually gains some traction. And that may sound very idealistic, overly hopeful, but I don't think it actually is because I, I see in these countries in which we work, people still changing the lives of those in their communities, even in this moment of pandemic, even in a moment where authoritarianism is on the rise. And that is hopeful. That does suggest that there's another way of operating that is reasonable, not high in the sky, and that can actually structure societies in a way that works for the people that live in them, as opposed to the people who have traditionally enjoyed power over them. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your thoughts. Really, really inspiring. It's really wonderful to meet both of you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter, Exploring the Five Senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.